Well, good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 1. And as you're turning to James chapter 1, I just want to say welcome to everybody. And if you're a first-time guest here this morning, welcome. Maybe you've been uh, visiting our church recently. I want to say welcome to you as well. And want to just give you a special invite. You'll hear something more about this later in the service and our announcements. Uh, but I want to invite you to our Discover Schindler class. All right, that'll be next Sunday at 5 p.m. It's in the home of one of our church members. It's an opportunity for us to eat a meal together, uh, get to know you, you to get to know us. It's a class that's meant for those who are ready to take the step to join our church uh, or for those who just want to hear a little bit more about who we are. And so uh, there won't be any pressure there or anything. So we'd love for you to come and join us. We already have over 30 people signed up for that class. First class of the year. That's pretty awesome. Praise God for that. So... It's exciting to see what God's doing, and we'd love for you to be a part of that class. So go by the uh, Welcome uh, Center this morning, and you can sign up there. And so uh, James chapter 1 is where we are. This is week 2 of the series that we're in, and James here at the beginning of the year. Uh, we think this is a great uh, book for us to be in as we move into the new year, seeking to be all-in disciples of Jesus. And uh, so uh, we'll be in uh, James chapter 1. The series is called Authentic Faith. Authentic faith, and last week, uh, and really just to explain just uh, the gist of what uh, James is about, it's he's about making sure we understand what authentic faith looks like, uh, the way it moves, the way it impacts our life, uh, the way it sounds, the way authentic faith talks, and so he is. Uh, it's it's a bossy little book. Other than the book of Joel, man, it is a convicting book. Uh, it's got 108 verses with over 60 commands, but he's all about, hey, we're not just going to talk the talk. Let's walk the walk if we're disciples of Jesus Christ. And so last week we looked at what authentic faith looks like when we go through trials. And this week we're going to look at what authentic faith looks like when we go through trials. But a different kind of trial. All right, stand with your Bibles open. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift, or every good gift, and every perfect gift, rather, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray that as we hear your word, as James is going to tell us in this book, that we just wouldn't be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, illuminate our minds. Lord, illuminate our hearts. Lord, bend our will. Lord, our stubbornness. Lord, I pray that you would shape us and mold us and transform us more into the likeness of your son as a result of being together this morning in your word and applying these truths to our life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, James said, don't make the mistake of thinking when you come to Jesus, all your problems are just going to be behind you. That there uh, will be trials ahead. Trials are a part of life. As long as we're walking through this broken world, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And this week, James says that there's another kind of trial that we wish when we came to Christ that would leave us alone. Right, so I mean, you might have thought I, I thought coming to Jesus that all my ten, all the temptation to sin and all that would leave me. Right, not so fast. That's not the way it works. Uh, in the first uh, several verses, we look at the difference between these two trials, and, and the reason why I'm I'm, I'm talking this way is uh, because in the original language, uh, when I talk about trial, uh, the word for trial that comes through in our English as trial in the first twelve verses is the exact same word for temptation. It's the same Greek word. 
right? But because we need some help in our, you know, in, in our language to understand what he, what he was talking about, uh, he helps us understand that, there, that these two trials are different, right? That the trial that he's talking about in the first 12 verses is different than the trial in the second verses. It's called temptation. And those two things are very different. Last week, we talked about trials that we'll encounter in life, these circumstances that are so often out of our control uh, that we will uh, collide into. But how God uses trials, those bad seasons of our life, tragedies, uh, relationship trials, uh, family trials, financial trials, uh, trials with your work, trials in your life. He, he uses those circumstances that we don't ask for that just kind of come into our life. If we'll allow him to and persevere through those, he'll use those to strengthen us. He'll use those to build us and to establish us at uh, the roots of our faith more deeply in him and make us stronger. All right. The trials that we're talking about this week, temptations, they're different. All right. These are, these are tests, but these are, these are Tests that are set up, traps that are set up by somebody else. These are traps that are set up, tests that are set up to destroy us. There's a big difference, all right? So one's designed to build you up. That's the one we talked about last week. The one this week's designed to tear you down, all right? One is designed to lift you up. The other is designed to trip you up. One has a positive destination for your life. The other that we're going to look at this week has a deadly destination for your life. All right, trials come from God, temptations come from, or the traps that we were going to call temptations are coming from our enemy, coming from Satan. So think about it this way. When General Motors tests a car, all right, they go, they take the cars that they're, they're producing, manufacturing, and they run them through a litany of tests, right? And they test a car for a couple of reasons, right? They want to identify any flaw in the car. They want to identify any weakness, uh, any issue that needs to be strengthened. And they're looking to expose weaknesses in their product, in their car, for a specific reason. They're exposing weaknesses for the purpose of caring for that weakness, of nurturing that weakness, of making sure that they make that weakness stronger, right? And, and rid the car of that weakness. And the end goal is to produce the most reliable, trustworthy, strong product that they can produce. All right. They want to be able to tell you that this car has been run through a ringer of tests. All right. It's been road tested. It's passed uh, countless inspections. It's had all the tests from the shocks to the electronics, to the engine, to the lights. We've run all these tests to show our car's worthiness. All right. So they run those kind of tests, but the GM company also runs tests on other companies' cars. And when the GM company runs a test on a Ford car, they're doing something different there, all right? They're, they're, they're running that test for a different kind of purpose. They're exposing the weakness of that Ford vehicle for a different purpose, right? They're, they're exposing it not to fix it, but to tear down the competition, to kill the competition. And I want you to know that God in the lives of his kids always runs that first test on us. He always is, uh, he's, he's allowing us to walk through trials. Sometimes he'll set up those circumstances, but it's always meant to help us to grow more dependent on him, to help us grow, to establish us in our faith, to take us through some trials. He'll take us through some pains always so that we'll experience some gains. That's the kind of trials that God takes us through to build us up. Satan's in the business of always running that second kind of test, all right, a test that we're going to call, that our Bible calls in our English translation, a temptation. It's designed to expose weakness for a different kind of purpose. Not to fix us, but to destroy us. Not to take us to a place of growth, but to take us to a place of destruction and death. And so James doesn't just want, as we looked at last week, to help us persevere through trials and hard times. He wants us to learn how to resist temptation. 
And it's interesting that this section comes right after the section on persevering through trials. Because is it not true that it's often in the middle of trials that our thinking gets foggy and faulty and fuzzy. And we tend to be more susceptible to not resist temptation. We become more susceptible to sin in those moments. So part of what James is saying here is that a way to persevere through trials and a way to endure through trials in a way that will make you strong is to learn to resist temptation in the trial. But, you know, regardless of whether you're going through a trial this morning or things are smooth sailing in your life, temptation isn't far from you. The enemy prowls. Temptation is not far from you. As much as we don't like this truth, from the cradle to the grave, there will always be an unwelcome guest companion in our life, and his name is temptation. So we got to learn how to overcome it. And James gives us three principles to help us do just that. And my prayer is that applying these truths by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, that this year, more than ever, we'll live at resisting temptation like we never have before, that we'll experience what it's like to live as an overcomer. All right, we can do that um, in Christ. Number one is this, identify the source of temptation. Number one, identify the source of temptation. Look at verse 13. Um, Again, it says, let no one say when. Notice it doesn't say if. Temptations are inevitable, just like trials. All right. Let no one say when he is tempted. I'm being tempted by God for God himself cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. You know what this is doing? James right here is pointing to our propensity to pass the buck, to not own our sin, to try to blame God when we make bad decisions. God, if you, and sometimes we do that. We try to blame God. If you wouldn't have allowed me in the situation, I probably wouldn't have made these decisions, right? God, if you wouldn't have made me this way, if you wouldn't have given me these desires, if you wouldn't have given me these genes, uh, Lord, I, I wouldn't be acting the way that I'm acting. James is saying you can't do that. Say God cannot be tempted and therefore cannot tempt anyone, right? What is James saying right there? That God's nature, remember this, is 100% holy. He's, he's 100% righteous. And it means this, that there's nothing in God that desires him to sin, which means there's nothing in him that desires for us to sin. All right, so we can't blame God. Well, I just believe, I really believe that God sent her to me. You're married. Don't blame that on God. Well, he arranged things. No, he didn't. He didn't send another woman to you. Stop. You need to look in scripture and be reminded of the impeccability of God. Nothing in Jesus can respond to sin. Nothing in God can respond to sin or tempt someone to sin. Well, okay, I'm not blaming God, but I wouldn't be making these choices if they, and we point the finger at someone, we pass the buck. Our default mode is to blame shift. And notice how that sentiment's growing in our culture. Passing the buck, right? It's not my fault I'm acting this way. It's not my fault I'm being this way or talking this way. It's not my fault I got a rotten attitude. It's God's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my church's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's the government's fault. It's my parents' fault. I sat in my high chair and my parents didn't let me blow bubbles in my chocolate milk like I wanted to. Let me throw my chicken nuggets when I wanted to throw them. That's why my life's a disaster. That's why I'm making bad, poor life choices. It's in style today to blame other people and to pass the buck. Listen, it's always been in style. When it comes to humanity, to blame God, to blame others for our sin. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin. God confronts Adam about eating the forbidden fruit. What does Adam say? She, she made me do it. You gave her to me and she made me. Hey, God, everything was okay. I was, li- hey, well, she came along. I was living the bachelor life. I was hanging out with the animals. I was watching a lot of TV, eating my frozen po- Tostinas party pizzas, living up the bachelor's life. 
And then you sent her to me, ruined it for everybody. And notice he said, you sent her to me. That's the way that Adam says it. He's blaming God. He's blaming her, but he's ultimately blaming God. What did Eve do? She said, it was the serpent's fault. He deceived me and ate. So you got Adam blaming God. You got Eve blaming the serpent. Maybe you're going, well, what's the serpent say? The serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on in this. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. What do you have in Genesis 3? Listen, you have the first round ever being played of the blame game. A game that we haven't stopped playing since. All right, James, here's what James is doing right here. He's tracking the beast of sin to its den. And he's taking the finger that we like to point at other people and blame, and he's turning it to the place of its origin, and it's right here in our own heart. Sin comes from within us. Yeah, but well, what about Satan? No, he's not even giving us room, a place to stand on to say, Satan made me do it. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You can't even say the devil made me do it. You know, it's interesting that in the first three chapters of Romans, which is, Romans, first three chapters, which is the most thorough presentation you find in all of Scripture that shows you what the doctrine of sin is, Satan's not mentioned one time. Right here in James chapter 1, Satan's not explicitly, he's not named here. He's not pointed out. We see his activity, but his name's not there. To make sure we understand that the temptation to do evil, that the evil desire tugging me away to sin is found in me. You say, well, what's Satan's role in all of this? Satan sets the traps. If I was 100% sanctified, I wouldn't even ever, I wouldn't ever go around the trap. I wouldn't take the bait, right? But we do because there's an evil desire in our flesh to do so. Satan, he's, he's in the business of just re- being really good at setting traps, right? Once we've been freed, once we've stepped into a relationship with Christ, we're God's, right? He can't touch our soul. We're eternally secure in the hands of God, he can't ever, he, Satan, he knows that he can't uh, touch that. But his objective now is to make you ineffective. And what he can play with is your desires, the desires of your flesh, right? So we need to understand something about sin right here, all right? When I talk about desire, I want to make something really clear right here. See, all of us are created with, with hardwired like we're hardwired with, with good God-given desires, all right? This is really important, so lean in and pay attention to this, all right? We, we all are, are born with God-given desires, all right? The good desires, all right? We have a desire to eat. That's a good desire. Praise God. We get to eat here in a little bit. We love to eat. Without it, we starve. We're born with a desire to rest. That's good. Kind of gives us some energy. It, it's good to rest. The desire to be successful, that's a good desire. Without it, we're not productive. We don't advance, right? The desire to be intimate, we're all born with that desire. Without the, It's a good desire. Without it, we don't procreate. These are good foundational desires of humanity. Each one is good in its God's design, proper place. And what sin is, at its core, is seeking to fulfill God-given desires in God-forbidden ways. That's what sin is. Doing something bad with something good. So food is good, gluttony is a sin. All right? Rest is good, laziness and slothfulness is a sin. Sex is good when it's placed within the confounds of a biblical marriage relationship. You say, well, that sounds ancient. Well, I would just say, look around, be honest, pay attention to the pattern of Scripture here, and just be teachable. Scripture teaches that, that sex is a gift from God. 
I, I often would use this illustration with students. It's kind of like the gift of fire. All right. Fire is a good gift in its right place. In the fire pit, in the fireplace, it's a good thing. You can have your marshmallows. You can sit around it. You can enjoy a nice evening. You take that same fire that uh, creates an enjoyable atmosphere and you take it inside and you put it in your wooden cabinets. It's not so good. And so it is with the desires God's given us when we take them out of the rightful place and put them in a place that we want to put them. So whether it's, you know, fornication, whether it's viewing things on a computer, that's a destructive shortcut. That's what God's word uh, warns us of. Success is good. Chasing it at the expense of your family, chasing success while you, you sacrifice your kids and your wife and your family on the altar of success, turns that into a bad thing. And see, we're all born with this broken desire. And here's the thing. We're born with this broken desire. And then this desire kind of lingers and hangs out in our flesh. And it's going to be there for the rest of our life as long as we're breathing in this broken world. It's this lingering desire to fulfill our God-given desires in God-forbidden ways. As opposed to living under the full reign of Christ's lordship over our life. And Satan is masterful at appealing to that desire to take the shortcut. And he knows you. He knows you. He studies you. Notice that phrase at the end of verse 14. Enticed by his own desire. His own desire. Right? You have your own desires. We all have certain sinful desires and and ways that we like to take shortcuts that are common, that we, we, can, we can understand and we kind of share those in common. But we also have ways that sin tends to manifest itself uniquely in each of our lives. So we, can, we have to be careful not to get prideful because sometimes we can be over here and we have a sin in our life that's not manifesting itself as, as loud and as public as that person over there. Oh, be careful. Satan knows, Satan knows where you're weak. And he'll attack you where you're weak. Satan's got game film on you. There's a game happening uh, tomorrow night. All right. Some of you are like, I don't care about that. Some of you do care. Some of you are going to tune in uh, the college football championship game, Alabama versus Georgia. Right. Most of the world is going to root against the, the people at the top of the mountain. Hope Alabama gets kicked off the mountain. Hope for an upset. I hear an amen. <laughs> Everybody except Gators, because, you know, over my dead body are Gators going to root for the Georgia Bulldogs. Right. They're going to begrudgingly, they're going to begrudgingly be rooting for Alabama. And I'm not sure, hey, I'm not sure what all that went into the preparation for that game this week. Hey, but I can guarantee you this. They studied a lot of game film. They studied game film of their opponents. These coaches make a living studying their opponents' moves, studying their weaknesses, and then creating strategies to take down their opponents. And if you're in Christ, you are an enemy of Satan. You are an enemy of the one who prowls this world looking for people to devour. A beast looking for people to devour, looking for lives to destroy. You were an enemy of God, but in Christ, you've been transferred into a new kingdom. You're a friend of God, now an enemy of Satan. And he's got game film on you and he wants to destroy your life. And he's setting traps to do just that. Appealing to your desire to fulfill God-given desires in forbidden ways. The enemy prowls. You need to be aware of that. But listen, you need to be aware that as true as that is, he can't make you sin. I just want to let that sit out there. If you're in Christ, he can set the traps, but he cannot make you sin. He can make you want to sin, but he can't make you do it. Sin is born out of the desire of my flesh. 
The devil is not, he's not omnipresent. He only has the ability to be in one place at one time. He's got an operation. He's got a lot of little cronies, a lot of little minions, a lot of demons who are help, helping him strategize and enact his plan on humanity. Listen, but he's not always with you. You know who's always with you? You. You know who's always with me? Me. And we can't heal, we can't change, we can't grow, we can't overcome until we identify the biggest problem in the battle of our temptation. Your biggest problem is you. And my biggest problem is me. It's our flesh. That's the first step towards resisting temptation. That's the first step towards really gaining some ground and learning to be an overcomer, identifying the source. That, hey, that, that's the kind of humility that makes you moldable and teachable in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Owning it. With that kind of heart, James says, hey, all right, with that moldable, teachable heart, you ready to own? You ready to own those desires of your flesh? Stop blaming everybody else. Lean in. Let me show you something. Because I'm going to show you something else that will help you. Be teachable. And this is point two. Beware the path of temptation. Beware of the path of temptation. Again, if you tune into that game tomorrow night, I can guarantee you there will be a pivotal play. Maybe it'll be a long pass along a sideline. Uh, maybe it'll be a pass into an end zone. Maybe it'll be a fumble that happens and is recovered. And there'll be some whistles that'll blow. And the, the game will be stopped. And they'll use some technology that's come about in the last couple decades, last few decades, that will help decipher how to move forward in the game the right way. How to make the right call. And it's called the slow motion replay. All right? And so what'll happen is, is, is they'll slow everything down. They'll frame by frame. And then they'll bring in an expert analyst, which you'll look forward to that because everybody else in the room is going to be an expert analyst. Like, shh, quiet. Let's actually listen to the person who knows what they're talking about. And they'll slow down that play. A play that was so quick, just to, to the naked eye, just boom, boom, play. They'll slow it down and they'll show you frame by frame something that you weren't able to see so that a right decision can be made. And see, we think we invented that technology. It's actually biblical technology. Because what is James doing right here? He's slowing the camera down. He's slowing down the camera and he's showing you the process, the pattern, the path of temptation. And then it's like the ultimate expert, the Holy Spirit is coming in and analyzing this for us to help us make the right decision moving forward. Well, here's a slow motion replay, you ready? But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own flesh. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what does he want you to know? He wants you to see. See there? You're dragged away and enticed by your own desire. We just covered that because you want to take a shortcut. But then let's slow down and let's not just cover that. Let's study where this leads. Let's take some time to slow down and pay attention to where in those moments that you don't resist temptation, where it's going to lead you. Let's take, let's take some time and look at the destination of every path of temptation. And he's, he's using hunting and fishing language to do this. Have you noticed that? He said, basically, James is saying, I need you to think like a fish for a second. I need you to think about what's going through the mind of a fish. When a fish is, some of you uh, are fishermen, you fish and you enjoy that. I don't fish a whole lot, but we know enough about fishing to understand what James is telling us. When a fish is caught, when it's dragged away, think about what's happening right here. When that fish moves in, right, to, the, to that attractive-looking, yummy-looking worm, that delicious worm, he's, we know he's biting down on more than a meal, right? He's sinking, he's literally sinking his teeth into the intentions of that fisherman, which are our intentions and plans not meant to make Nemo prosper, all right? 
They're not good plans for the fish. A fisherman catches a fish for one of two reasons, either uh, to to be a big meal in his mouth or to be a big mouth above his mantle. That's why he catches a fish. His intentions are for that fish to be caught and killed and cleaned and cooked, maybe fried, and then consumed. But he knows that won't happen. Very violent ending to that fish's life, right? I'm not complaining. I like fish. He's making a point. He says that won't happen unless the fish is convinced first that he's about to experience something good. So every fisherman, so what it means is every fisherman's just a really good deceiver. All right? There's not an honest fisherman alive. You're just deceiving a bunch of little fish. You're just saying, here, fishy, this will be good for you. This will be delicious. This will fill your belly. And that's what Satan's doing in our life. Take this path. It'll be good. Find fulfillment. This will make your life better. This will alleviate pain in the middle of trial. Listen, he's promising you to bring pleasure and happiness and fun. And Satan has a slick marketing department. And he's really good at only keeping the attractive promises of sin in view. He's never going to show you a preview of where it's going to take you. You know why I know that's true? We'd never take the bait if that's true. No one gets into a plane if they know it's going to crash. No one gets into a car if they know it's going to be involved in a head-on collision. You have to learn. What James is saying is you've got to learn. All right, first own your desire. Then you've got to learn to look for the hook. You've got to know this process starts with desire, leads to deception. And then where does temptation ultimately lead? Verse 15. Then this is a gruesome picture right here. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when it is fully grown, brings forth sin. Oh, he changes metaphors. Kind of hard to keep up. You know, you got to pay attention to what's going on right here. We just moved from beneath the sea or beneath the lake or beneath the pond, washing up fish, track down a little yummy worm with a hook underneath it, to now we, he shifted and now we're in the middle of a birthing room where a baby's about to be born. And it's a graphic and disturbing picture Showing you the destination of your sin. It's a graphic picture. Scholars believe this is James. Look, look at it. Listen to this. Pay attention. This is James. He's, he's painting the picture of a family being in the birthing room. Expecting and anticipating a new life to be born. Only to experience the birth of a stillborn baby. That's what a lot of scholars believe is the picture that he's painting right here. And if that is true, then think about how this relates to our sin. Sin promises life. A desire conceives and gives birth to sin. Sin you thought was going to, think about it, was going to bring you joy. You're in that birthing room. It's going to bring you joy. It's going to bring you fulfillment. Man, the bait looks so good. And then sin promised you more happiness and more fun and satisfaction. Stillborn baby. And in a moment, the consequences of sin hit. And James is like, that's where sin leads. That's the destination of the path of temptation. And Satan is so slick and he's so good at leading us to that place. And Satan comes along and he says that, notice he says to Adam and Eve, what does he say to him? He says, hey, he's good at framing it in an attractive way. Hey, just eat the fruit. Just one bite. God said, don't eat that. What's God holding back on you? What's he hiding from you? You're telling me he's, he's giving you all this other stuff, but he's that one tree he says not to eat from, something's up with that. 
I bet you there's something you can experience that's good. If you just take one bite, just one bite. And he thinks, maybe there is something that God's holding out on me about. It is just one bite. You know what he didn't say? You know what, you know what he didn't say? He didn't expose the hook and say, hey, bite into this. And you're going to have one of your sons that's going to kill another one of your sons. There's going to be pain in pregnancy. Men are going to have to work by the sweat of their brow. The world's going to be filled with problems and wars and conflict and death. He didn't say that. He just said, just one little bite. And desire led to deception, led to disobedience, which led to death. You know what he didn't say? Or, or you know what he said to Achan? Remember Achan? In the book of Joshua. They get into the promised land. The conquest is happening. It's moving along. Instructions were given very clearly not to take any treasure of those conquered cities to yourself. You know what? Satan comes along and the enemy comes along and sets a trap and says, Achan, really? It's not a big deal. I mean, there's warehouses of gold and jewels and treasures for Israel and God to enjoy. Nobody's going to notice if you take a couple things for yourself. Yeah, this will set you for life. You'll never have to worry about anything else again. Don't listen. God's, God couldn't have been that serious about it. No one's going to notice. Hide it under your tent. Move on with your life and enjoy the fulfillment that that's going to bring you. You know what he didn't say? Hey, steal that and you're going to die. Or else Achan would have swam the other, the other way, the other direction. How about David? And I believe these are the three stories in the Old Testament that James was thinking about that helped write his sermon right here, by the way. The third one is David. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the spring, he really should have been out with his men on the battlefield, but he's back at the palace. Nice spring afternoon, walking on the roof. He sees a lady bathing on the roof nearby. By the way, which not the first look's not a sin. He... he it seems to imply he, did, he, he had no control. He looks down. It's in his, his view. Right? The temptation's not a sin. You know, you know when the engine got cranked and he began to go down a pathway of temptation is the second look. It was when he looked back. It wasn't the first look. I remember, true story, teaching this in, a, in a, 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 an eighth grade Sunday school class. And... Uh, one of the boys, after I made that point, I made that exact point, he raised his hand. He goes, well, what if the first look's just a really long look? I said, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. <laughs> what did David hear? Hey, just one, hey, just one more look. It's just one more look. It's not that big a deal. No, it's, it's harmless. What he didn't hear him say, what he didn't hear Satan say is take a second look and it'll be an invitation to die. Take a second look and you're going to commit adultery, which is going to lead to you committing murder, which is going to literally, it's going to end in an actual baby's death by the time this whole saga is over with. Just a little second look. David's not going to hurt anybody. Listen, in the same, he's up to the same thing today. The same lies from the same mouth of the father of lies are presented to us. Hey, it's just, it's just looking at some stuff on your phone. It's just a little gossip. It's just a little pride. It's just a little lustful thought. Hey, it's just a little more extra spending that we know, money that we know we don't have. Just one other credit card. What's, what's another one? It's just a little harmless, flirty relationship at work. It's not that big a deal. And you don't swim away and sin is conceived and it grows into death. Eternal death for those who never come to Christ. But for the believer in Christ, listen, although you're rescued from eternal death, make no mistake. When you sin, you're inviting death into your life. 
It can kill your marriage. It can kill your career. It can kill your reputation. It can kill friendships. It can kill finances. It can lead into deadly seasons of addiction. Sin is a serial killer. And Satan will do everything he can to blind you from that reality. It wants to destroy you. Listen, that is what James wants you to see. He wants to help you see beyond the bait. Part of fighting temptation is realizing and remembering constantly that this is where it takes you always. So if you're in sin, here's what James is saying. Here's the message to you this morning. Maybe you've fallen into temptation. If sin has been conceived, if it's given birth into your, in your life, slay the sin, repent of the sin, swim the other way, swim towards God, keep swimming. But listen to this. This is very important. Know this, that overcoming temptation, consistently experiencing ongoing transformation in your life, breaking spiritual addictions won't just happen because this morning you kind of feel guilty and you say, I'm going to turn the other way and go another direction. That'll be short-lived, I promise you. It will mean that you, it may mean you, didn't, you need to reach out for help. You may be in that cycle of deadly addiction and you're caught up in that addiction. And you, and you might say, on one hand, I'm not, I can stop at any time. And yet you know that every time you say just one more time and I'm done is not, not the case. Satan wants you to keep thinking that, hey, if I just indulge one more time in this, it'll leave me alone. And you're going to one more time and I'm done to your grave. And if you're in that cycle of deadly addiction, you need to reach out for help. We're here to help you. And if we can't help you, listen, we'll put you in the arms of someone and connect you with someone who can. We want to help, listen, lift you up and and pull you in. We don't want to push you down and push you out. We want to lift you up and pull you in because that's what Jesus wants to do. And so you need to reach out for help if that is you. We want to help you. It's going to involve and entail gospel-filled effort to kill your sin. It's going to involve disciplined prayer. It's, hey, it's going to require swimming, not just away from your sin, but into spiritual disciplines. I thought this was a great quote I read this week by Matt Smithhurst. He said, this is, this is really good. He said, we do not break bad sinful habits. We replace them. We do not break bad sinful habits. We replace them. We replace them with spiritual disciplines. We know that the root of our problem is a desire issue. We've already covered that. In order for our behavior to behave, our desires got to change. I didn't plan to say that, so I'm going to say that again. In order for our behavior to behave, our desires have to change. And how do our desires change? Through a consistent flow intake of God's word into our life. A scripture-saturated mind leads to a sanctified lifestyle. When Jesus was in the wilderness, slammed temptation after temptation, what was the weapon that he used? What did he keep saying every time he was faced with temptation? It is written. And he used the word as his, as his weapon, setting a model for us. The, the main weapon that we have at our disposal against temptation is his word. But it's powerless in your life if you don't know it. It's powerless in your life if you're not growing to, to love it and cherish it and hide it in your heart in a disciplined way each and every day. James is going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But you know the way that he ends this section isn't focusing on that, but he's focusing on this overarching truth that he argues is the main reason why people don't resist temptation. And really the reason that he gives is a result of not being in the word. Let me give you that. But what he says is this, he goes, when you chomp down on the bait, what it boils down to is this, you're not convinced of the goodness of God. When you choose to sin, Adam and Eve, same way, 
your heart is not fully convinced in that moment of the goodness of God. Because listen to the way he ends. He says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Listen, not resisting temptation can be reduced down to this. It can boil down to this. In that moment, we've forgotten how bad we are and how good God is. It always boils down to that. We've forgotten how bad we are. James has already covered that. And we've forgotten how good God is. He's spent some time making us look inward. And by the way, if there's nothing for you to own this morning, I don't know how I can help you. If there's not a sin, if there's not some, some sinful desires that you feel kind of swirling, some temptation, you sensing that, that, that Satan's got some game film on you and is attacking you in some different areas. If you can't sense anything and you say you're a Christian, I don't think I can help you. Maybe I can. It may be pride. So he's focused inwardly, making sure that we own our sin and recognize that temptation is all around us. We're always being tempted. But then he, now he's going from us looking inward to making sure that we know the solution ultimately is to look into his word, which makes us look upward to him. And to see how good he is. Notice he says there in verse 16, which I think is a key part of this. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived about everything I just said when it comes to you being lured away and the destruction that can bring into your life. And don't be deceived about this truth. God is good. That never changes. See, we're tempted in our trials to think God's to blame. God, where are you? You led me into this. You've let me down. You're not caring for me. You're not performing in a way that's meeting my expectations. Listen, God is never the problem. He's always the solution. He's our helper, not our harmer. He's our savior, not our tempter. He's good. And when we sin, it's because in that moment, we're not convinced of that. We're not convinced that he's good all the time. So we do this responsive declaration sometimes. I grew up in my church doing it. And, it, you know, we, we did it for a long, long time. And it just kind of became kind of routine. And I think some kind of viewed it as a little corny. But it's not a bad idea. Because what it's leading you to do together is to declare a really important truth. And it's a truth about God's goodness and how that never changes. We need to remember that. So I, I'm going to say how many of you know how to do this, right? God is good all the time. That was good. For those of you who now know how it goes, join us. God is good all the time. All right. So my question to you, answer this in your heart. Do you believe that? You truly believe that. I want you to be convinced of that. So I'm gonna throw that line out there a couple of times here as we close this out and I need you to help me finish it because I want you to be convinced that we serve a God who says in his word, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He has he's not just saved you by his grace. He's promised you by his grace that he'll always give you a chance to swim in the opposite direction. He'll always provide an escape hatch. You'll never be in a situation where the choice is to sin or to sin as a Christ follower. Man, I'm just getting started, but that is a truth that reminds us that God is good all the time. That was okay. You're going to get better. In verse 17, he says, look upward and remember that the father is a father of lights. 
in which there's no variation of any kind. He always gives good gifts to his kids. He always has good plans for his kids. He never changes. God's never messing with us. He isn't a cosmic killjoy. He's not trying to hold out on you. He's a loving, good God who gives loving, good boundaries to his kids because he has plans for you to prosper. He has plans for you to be protected and to live a life that's good, that's for his glory, but for your safety and for your joy and for your delight and for your happiness. And if you doubt God's goodness, listen, you'll be enticed to take the bait like Adam and Eve did. But if you know God is good, you will gladly swim away from what he says is sin and you'll swim in the direction of what he says is good because you're convinced that God is good all the time. time. And listen, his goodness is most clearly seen and powerfully seen in his willingness to send his son to die for us on the cross and to save us. His willingness, as it says in verse 18, to bring us forth unto new life. It talked about a different kind of birth in the first part of that that led to death. Well, he's talking about another kind of birth that brings life. And if you know Jesus and you've been saved, you've experienced this new birth. He's brought you into new life by the power of his word, by the power of the gospel. That what? That we should be a first fruits of his creatures. That's taken us back to the Old Testament. The first yield of the harvest was set apart to give an, as an offering to God to be set apart unto him. And through Christ, what is he saying there? I believe he's saying this. You're born again. You're filled with the spirit of God, which means you don't have to live in the bondage of sin anymore. The power of sin has been broken in your life. And you've been set free to be set apart to holiness for God. Now, don't hear me wrong there. We can't live in perfection until we stand in the presence of Jesus one day. But my good and gracious God, here's the truth, has raised me to new life and has given me new life and has given me his spirit so that I can experience not perfection, but a real progression of victory over my sin in Christ Jesus. He's raised me to new life so I can make a choice today to swim away from my sin and to swim towards him. That's how good he is. And that's why I can say God is good all the time. And one day God's going to finish the work he started in me. And the curse that not only has entered into our hearts as human beings, but has entered into this world, will one day be fully removed. He'll rip the curse off of this world and he'll toss it away and rip it off of our life and he'll redeem everything. And in that moment, we will experience forever and ever what it's like to never be tempted again. To never have to repent of another sin. To never have to deal with the destruction that sinful choices bring into our lives. And we'll be able to forever proclaim God is good all the time. The last thing I want to say is this. Some of you have wandered so far this morning that you wonder, is there any way back? And I'm talking to you. I'm talking to a believer this morning. And you've heard the enemy whisper, just give up. It'll never be the same. This is so bad, there's no way back. And I would just say, hey, lock your heart into verse 16. Do not be deceived. That's foolishness. There's a door wide open to you. And Satan may say there's no way back. He's a liar. There's a door wide open. Come to him with a contrite heart, remembering that the Christian life is a promise that your life is going to be a series of new starts. A series of new beginnings that can begin today. There's a door wide open for those who with a contrite heart own their sin. Who feel far away from God. Begin to make their way back to a God who never moves. We're the ones who move. And walk back through that door into his loving arms. Where he says, hey, I forgive you. I love you. You're still my child. I'm still good. Begin again. A truth that 
should remind all of our hearts in a fresh way that God is good all the time. Let's pray. Some of you are here this morning, and here's where you need to taste the goodness of God. You need to be saved. God has revealed his plan for salvation throughout his word. In one of our favorite places where he reveals it is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Some of you are here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never trusted in his death and resurrection. You've never believed that the only way to have a right relationship with God, for your sins to be forgiven, for you to go to heaven when you die, But not just to go to heaven when you die, for you to be able to live an abundant life, free of the bondage of sin. Growing in holiness is to trust in Jesus Christ with your life, to bow to him as king. To throw the full weight of your faith on what he accomplished through living a perfect life in your place. You couldn't do that. You're a sinner. To die on the cross for you in your place. He took that judgment you deserve. And then he rose from the dead. Are you willing this morning to admit your sin and to believe what he did on that cross counted for you? You say, I believe it counted for me. It sounds like the Holy Spirit very well may be working in your heart. And we'd love to talk with you. There'll be an opportunity as we stand and sing in just a moment. This happens sometimes. Just leave your seat and come down and I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to help you take those steps towards following Jesus. If you are a believer in this room, own your sin. Stop passing the buck. Take responsibility. Recognize the deception, the destination of where the sin maybe you are even involved in right now is taking you and swim the other way. Confess sin, repent of sin, and swim the direction that you know you should be swimming in as a child of God. And know that his grace abounds and his mercies are new. And no matter where you're at, all of us can do this. We can celebrate and rejoice in the goodness of God. Hey, that's the main fuel that's going to cause us to walk out of this room and live the rest of this life more for his glory. He's good. It never changes. Praise God for his goodness.